0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. I want to begin by saying what a blessing it is to be here this morning. Uh, For those of you all that don't know me that I haven't introduced myself, my name is Levi Richardson. I come from the hills and hollers of Kentucky about 800 miles away or something like that. The way the crow flies is not as far. But I was invited to speak here this morning, and I will do my best to expound to you what I've learned in this portion of Scripture. Before I get into the study this morning, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation, a little bit of a preface, I guess you could say, to this sermon. Uh, We're going to be talking about a topic this morning that is very difficult uh, to talk to people about. It's very difficult to speak to even other Christians about, and... I want to help us overcome that difficulty this morning. The topic we're going to be talking about is sexual purity. And the gospel and all the scripture in the New Testament that is on it, it is the most widely, other than baptism and how to become a Christian, this is the most widely talked about topic in the New Testament. And it's mentioned over and over and over again. And the reason this is, as we break in and get into this study, we realize that this impurity that begins in home, it begins in ourselves, will destroy everything in the church. What are churches made of? They're made up of individual families, right? And these are strong families. And those families are made up of in these homes and their marriages between a husband and a wife. And if Satan can get in here and break this marriage up, by having some form of sexual sin come in here, it weakens the family, weakens that marriage unit, which weakens the entire home. It starts putting pressure between you and your children and you and your parents and cousins and brothers. Then it weakens the entire church and then the church falls. So Paul, numerous, I think in seven different epistles, writes specifically to this this problem. We're going to talk about it today because it's something, as this topic is t- entitled, conquering the last stronghold and you may think why have I put this title up here well there's two reasons I believe that this sexual sin creates a stronghold in our minds that we don't want anyone into we, we don't let anyone into we don't let our spouse in there we don't even really like to go into ourselves, but it's a part that we keep hidden and more important we try to keep it hidden from God and that's wrong this is a we're supposed to let God come into our lives and change us from the inside, making us into new creatures. And if we keep part of Him locked out of us, we will never be fully obedient to Him. It's also a stronghold because I think the church has not adequately talked about this. This is a problem that was obviously a problem in the first century church, and it's definitely a problem today in America, all over the world. So we need to talk about it. We need to be prepared to defend against it. Whenever you think of the word stronghold, what do you think of? I think of an impregnable, impregnable, impregnable. Impregnable is that the word? Impregnable fortress, a super strong fortress. I'm trying to use big words. A a really big, strong castle that nobody can get into. Right? They've got tall walls. They've got a moat, and it's really difficult to break into. Whenever me and my brothers were growing up in Kentucky, there's a holler right in front of our house, and we would go down there and we'd build forts. Right? We'd cut down sticks, we'd stick them in the ground, make defenses, you know, try to be really strong. But we knew that they could be easily broken against. We'd build these rock walls and we'd get mad and knock them down, right? They weren't strong. We could easily take them over. So a stronghold in our mind was something that could not be taken. It was something that was extremely difficult to attack. Easy to defend, but difficult to attack. And I want to conquer that. I want my life to be in complete and total submission to God. I want every part of me to be in submission to God. And my mind is one part of that. And whenever we keep God locked out of our mind because we have this secret sin, which all sexual sins are secret, right? We don't want anyone to know about them. Especially if if you're married, you don't want them knowing about this over here. You try and keep it hidden. It's something that we have to tear down. We have to be open about it. The passage that we're going to read this morning is in 1 Thessalonians verses chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. I'm going to read that so it can be ruminating in our minds here. It says, "...furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus." For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned and testified you, For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who has given unto us His Holy Spirit. Something that whenever I was reading this scripture and making this study, there was a sentence that stood out to me. It was this verse right here. This is the will of God. How easy it would be if we had a book in the New Testament, it was written to modern Christians and say, this is the modern Christian epistle. If you want to buy a home and you're having struggles, go to chapter 24, verse 13, right? This is the will of God for you individually. We don't have that. We have the New Testament, and there's only a few times in Scripture where we know the will of God. And this is one of them, that you should abstain from fornication. That's huge. This is God's intent for us is that we should abstain from fornication. Matthew 19:4 through5, we see that this has been the will of God forever, from the beginning. it says He answered and said to them, "Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, "For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain should be one flesh." This covenant relationship that God has ordained in marriage, that's been His goal. It's been His plan for mankind from the beginning. And what happened, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered the world. And people started messing up. People started sinning against their wives, against their husbands, against their relationships. The closest relationship that you can have on this earth. And people hurt them. And sin entered the world. So, we have a problem. Because violation of this purity is against God's will. Right? People, whenever they... Uh, whenever they partake in fornication. We're told there in that verse to abstain from it. Whenever we partake of it, we're violating God's will. 1 Corinthians six eighteen and 19 says to flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Whenever we commit this sin, we're sinning against ourselves, most importantly, because it creates a rift between us and God. It creates rift among other people. It creates rifts between your spouse, between your children, between your church family. But more, most importantly, it creates a rift between you and God. And you're in danger, as we'll look here in a minute, of losing your soul, of losing your salvation if you continue down this path. Like I said, we have a problem, right? Look at America today. We're just going to look at the general population, not in the church, but just in the general population. Marriage statistics. 1972 to 2022, marriages have declined by 50%. That's the number of people getting married. Now, has the number of people declined? No. But the number of people that are getting married has. Why? Well, we see it evident everywhere, right? People just move in with each other, and they created this shacked up type of home that lacks stability that God has ordained in marriage. In a strong marriage, you have a husband and a wife working together for the good of the children and for the good of the Lord, and they're trying to honor God. And in this new type of concept, you have a man and a woman that are living together that There's no stability. Nothing binds them together. So if they have children, then it's instability. And we see thousands, if not millions, of children that live today in a broken home because of this. Another thing, pornography statistics. 58% of Americans admit to watching this at least once. I want to put a pause right here. In this, because this is something that is grossly under talked about. It's not talked about nearly enough because everybody's got it right here or right here, right? It's that available. I could go like that, click a button, and I'm there. And we have responsibility as Christians to abstain from fornication. What is fornication? It's not just. The Greek word there is "pornia," as we'll look in a minute. And that doesn't just entail having a relationship before marriage, but it entails pornography, it entails adultery, it entails homosexuality. All these sexual sins is what this encompasses. And this is a problem, huge problem. 58% of Americans, there is roughly 350 million people in America, so 6 out of 10 people you meet. Yeah, they've seen it. I want to talk about something because there's some harm in this. Heroin and cocaine users, we will admit there's a problem with that, right? We see the harm. We have had a quote-unquote war on drugs since the 1990s. You see those numbers I've got up here, 902,000. That is the yearly amount of users, regular users of heroin in the United States. That's a lot of people, 902,000, almost a million people. We see 5.2 million yearly cocaine users, and then we have a number over here, 40 million. That's daily users of pornography, not not yearly, daily. You multiply that times 365, and yeah, it's a big number. I was homeschooled. I couldn't get that high, (laughs) but uh, this is an astronomical problem. I want to talk a minute about why this is a problem. I was doing a study and I found this article. I'm gonna quote this article real quick. It says that people may not think pornography is that bad. After all, no one is getting harmed by it, right? We're not, I'm not hurting you and you're not hurting me because it's all visual. It doesn't create harm with like physical drugs, cocaine and heroin, but it still produces an addiction nonetheless. How does internet pornography compare with illegal addictive chemical substances like cocaine and heroin? Cocaine is considered a stimulant that increases dopamine levels in the brain. Dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter that most addictive substances release as it causes a high and a subsequent craving for a repetition of the high rather than a subsequent feeling of endorphins by way of satisfaction. Heroin, on the other hand, is an opiate which has a relaxing effect both drugs trigger something called chemical tolerance, which requires higher quantities of the drug to be used each time to achieve the same intensity of effect. Pornography has both the high effect via dopamine and release effect via opiates and is a type of polydrug drug that triggers both addictive brain chemicals in one punch, enhancing its addictive propensity as well as its pattern to instigate a pattern of increasing tolerance you get the high and you get the release, both. So not only is it just one, but it's both. It it multiplies the addictive power of it. Think of it like cutting a trail through brush. Alright, you all know what it's like to live up in grown-up country. And if you're gonna make a trail from point A to point B through a thicket, you're gonna have to make a trail first, right? The first time you go through, you're gonna go through with a chainsaw cut up down all the big trees. Second time, you may take a machete and you're lopping off these limbs. Third time, you're taking a rake and raking all these branches and stuff down on the ground, making it clear. Third time, maybe you're bringing a bucket of gravel, throwing it down. And then, you know, fourth or fifth time, it's starting to be a paved road. And it becomes easier and easier and easier to fall in that pattern, fall in that rut. Before you know it, we've got an interstate going down here. And it becomes so much easier to fall in this pattern of sin. So the, what we need to do is create something that we will not start down this path, right? And it says God's will there in verse 3 is that we should abstain from fornication, abstain from this. So this problem, is it in the church or is it, or is it in the world or is it just in the church? Or is, it, is it just the world or in the church as well? Well... As I mentioned, he wrote of this problem in almost every epistle he wrote in the New Testament. This problem here isn't just a 21st century problem, but it's one for all time. Here specifically at Thessalonica, who he was writing to, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a Greek goddess of fertility and love. And men could go to this temple and commit sexual immoral sins with these prostitutes, all in the name of religion. And this was the pattern. This was the lifestyle that these Thessalonican Christians were coming out of. It was accepted to do that. So Paul's instructions to them to abstain from it, that's going to be counterculture. Everyone there is doing it. Everyone's going down to the temple and hooking up with a prostitute because that's what they would do. This was culture then. So his instructions are going to be counterculture to them. It's going to be against the norm. You're going to be running upstream. You're going to be like a salmon going to... Up to its nesting ground. It's not, it's gonna be hard to do. But it says here in verse 3 this is the will of God for us to be sexually pure and holy, even for your sanctification. He makes this word sanctification here uh, sanctification, sanctification, and holiness down here. Those three words is this Greek word, hagium. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce this. That's the Strong's number right there. But it means for your, for your holiness, to be holy. What, what does that mean, to be holy? Because this is something that, first, that Peter writes of in First Peter. He that is which is called you is holy. So ye be holy in all manner of your conversation. Conversation there being your way of life, in the way that you live. So we're to live this life of holiness one step in that is to abstain completely from fornication. It doesn't mean that we live 20% for, against it and 80% for God, but completely. The Greek word, like I said there, is pornea. And that means any sexual relationship outside of what God has ordained in marriage. If, it's not, if you're not married, it's not allowed. This is not condoned by God. And it's not a command to limit, but this is total abstinence, folks. If I'm not married, I'm not going to go sleep with a girl because I'm not called to do that. It's not God's plan. It's not God's design. It's not a marriage. So this control that we have to instigate over our lives, is it just to limit you know, physical desire, physical impulses, or is it mental as well? Does it, where does sin start? I think Jesus says here in Matthew 5:27 that it starts in the brain, it starts in your mind. You've heard it said of them by old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He says it begins here in the mind. It starts with your thinking. Again in a parallel passage Mark 20 or Mark 7 verse 20 through 23 he said, that which comes out of a man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. It starts in the heart, folks. It begins in your mind. So, Paul's instructions here in verse 4 is to have self-control. It says, every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. So this self-control is something that we need to practice when, when in what we let into our minds, as well as our actions. Parents have a responsibility here. Grandparents have a responsibility here, right? Your child doesn't know how to make the best decisions. Would you say that? Uh, No child has the capabilities to make the right decision without being taught. So you're going to teach them that this is the proper way. It may be that you have to limit certain things for them. Don't let them have a phone at eight years old or however, because they're going to be curious because that's what children are. They're naturally inquisitive. We have a responsibility to shield them, to protect them from the world that's out there. We need to practice what we let them see. Maybe if it's a movie that's got vulgar vulgarity in it, we need to not let them watch it. We don't need to be watching it. Job 31 and verse 1, he says this, "I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why should I think? Why then should I think upon a maid? Why should I look upon a maid?" is what that means. I made a covenant. He's married, right? He had a wife. I'm married to her. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not even going to look at another woman because this is my wife. It begins with this self-control. So it's controlling the mind. Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 14, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Make not provision for it. Have any of you all ever went camping and you would make up a pack? Your provisions is what you call it, right? I'm going to... You know, get food that I'm going to eat, my tents, my sleeping bag, whatever. I'm going to get all this stuff ready. I've got my provisions ready. I'm making plans for this trip. We do that for sin as well. We make a habit of making it easy to sin. If it's, say we struggle with pornography, right? Whenever someone leaves the house, we go to a room by ourselves and we commit that right we don't want it to be around other people so say you have a computer you have a and you leave it out in the open because you're not going to make provision it's going to be a whole lot harder to commit that sin in the room with other people right you're not going to want to do it around other people so you're going to try to make provision for that you're not going to make provision to sin but make provision to not sin to try and keep your life holy to try and abstain from this it's not easy. We, we make provision. At, like I said, as parents, we're not going to, my parents, we, never, we didn't have a TV growing up. That was my parents' decision. We didn't have a TV because of, it became, because of the advertisements. The television could be fine. The program that we're watching could be appropriate for our age. And then they throw these advertisements in that are not fit for a grown man to see, much less a child. And so my parents made the decision. We're not going to have a television because of that. And believe it or not, I survived. I'm here in 2023 in America without television. I didn't have a phone until I was 18. Granted, I was homeschooled. I didn't have anyone to call except my family. <laughs> but I was never tempted to sin because of that. I didn't have I didn't my parents didn't make provision for me to be able to sin as easily. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but as such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Breaking this verse down, There is no temptation taken you, but as common to man. Whatever sin you're going through right now in your life, someone else has dealt with it. More than likely someone in this room. And they can help you get over it. They, if you talk to them, that's one thing that the church is meant to be. We're not called to be a group of people that meet here on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Wednesday night, and that's it. That's the only time we see each other. I'm called to... You all are my brothers and my sisters. That ties us together as a family, right? And a family is there for each other. I have a huge family. It's Kentucky, and. I was involved in their life. Even though I was homeschooled and I was by myself with my family, there were still, you know, a couple hundred people there in the neighborhood that was my family that I could go and talk to. And most of them being members of the church meant that not only did I have a physical blood bond with them, but more importantly, I had a spiritual bond with them. I my spiritual family, they come first. Moreover, my relationship because my physical relationship your physical relationship yes you love and yes you care for them but Jesus says to hate your mother hate your father what does that mean to go out and you know burn their house down no it means to love them less love God more love your family in Christ more and then love your family on earth so it says no temptation is taking you it's common to man someone has went through this the devil his number one tactic in sin is isolation He wants to isolate you into thinking you're the only person in this room that's ever went through this trouble. No one else has went through the same struggles you're going through. You're all alone. They won't understand what you're going through. But we're here for each other. It says God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Whenever you're getting close to getting into this sin, look for a way out. There's one always. Say you're, you're at a party and a friend comes up with a drink and, you know, no harm, no foul. You're at a party, right? But then, you, you know, you may get a You see that no one else is doing it and you're like, hey, I need to leave. You know, you, you want to look for this way out. Not look for a way to sin, not make provision for it. But as he says there in Romans, make provision, make not provision for the flesh. We have to find this way out, guys. We can't be trying to sin, but looking for ways out of sin. I want to talk about a person, two people actually, two different stories here in Genesis, or one of them being Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. His brothers hated him because he was loved more than they were. He had this many-colored coat, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. He gets to Egypt, and he becomes a slave to Potiphar. And while he was in Potiphar's house, this instance happens to him. It says in verse 7, It came to pass after these things, after he was sold in Egypt, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has unto my hands. There is none greater in this house than I, Neither has he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I want to stop right there in this passage. Who would Joseph be sinning against? He, would, he wouldn't be sinning against Potiphar? Yeah, he'd be sinning against himself. He'd be sinning against Potiphar's wife. Against Potiphar, he'd be breaking that trust. But he doesn't think about that. He says, I'm going to be sinning against God. Most importantly, I'm going to be sinning against God. But it came to pass, that she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men in the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass that when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and was fled forth. He got out. He saw that way of escape that God had provided. and He got out of there. He wasn't going to sin in this. It says here in verse 10, it came to pass, she spoke to Joseph day by day. You know, going and studying about erosion, we see waves pounding upon a beach, right? Day after day, this wave comes up, beats against a rock, falls down. Continual. This is what this woman was doing to Joseph every day. And eventually we see with erosion that something crumbles, right? Joseph didn't crumble. He got out of there. He left, he left this place because he didn't want to sin against God. As it says here in verse 9, do this great wickedness and sin against God. So we see that damage is always caused whenever we commit sexual immorality. There's always damage that's going to be caused. Who's the damage going to be caused to? Well, most importantly, we see it's going to be caused to God's name. Joseph said that how could I do this wickedness and sin against God? He didn't want to commit that sin and sin against God. We see the damage to others around us. As as Joseph, it would have hurt Potiphar's wife. It would have hurt Potiphar. It would have hurt these people that he was around that he cared for. And ultimately, it would have hurt him. It would have hurt his own relationship that he had with God. So the second person I want to look at is David, because David responded poorly. We see Joseph responding in a positive light. Whenever he was confronted with this sin, he fled from it, right? As it says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, to flee fornication. Joseph did that. He fled from it. But David didn't. David, it starts there in the chapter, and it says that that time when kings should go to war... David stayed and let he let Joab go and sent out to war. Mistake number one was he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was not at war as a king should have been, but he stayed behind. And whenever he stayed behind, he was walking on his castle wall and looked out and saw Bathsheba, Bathsheba bathing over there. And he inquired and said, Who is that? And his servant said, Is this not Uriah, is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? He goes ahead and calls to her, brings her to his house. He lays with her. She becomes pregnant and he begins to panic, right? He shouldn't have been there in the first place. He committed this sin with her and now he said, ah, I've got to cover it up. So he calls in Uriah from the battlefield and says, Uriah, how goes the war? And he says, it goes well. He says, Uriah, go in, go, go to your wife. But he doesn't. He stays at the foot of the door there, the palace. So the next night, David is starting to get worried, so he gets him drunk and says, Uriah, go to your wife. And Uriah sleeps at the foot of the door. So that night, David concocts a plan to send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle. And then he tells Joab to retreat from him, let him fall, let him be killed. So he sends Uriah back with the letter to Joab. Joab sends him to the front of the battle, withdraws from him, and he's killed. He sends a letter back and says, Uriah has fallen. After the time of mourning, David and, Uriah and Bathsheba marry and the child is born. The child that was conceived is born and it dies. As it says, Nathan spoke to him, it says, How be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is also born unto thee shall surely die. David hurt a lot of people in there. He hurt Uriah, he hurt Bathsheba. He hurt his relationship with his other wives. He hurt his relationship with his children. He hurt his relationship with his people, with the people that he was king over. But Nathan says, you, cause given, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. This is dragging God's name through the mud. So let's pause right there. This is, your, this is David. How can we cause damage to God's name today? Well, we have a banner to uphold. We have this banner of God's name to uphold. And whenever we as Christians commit these sins, we're taking that and we're dragging it through the mud. We're taking this flag and dragging it through the mud. People will look at you and they'll say, well, so-and-so, he's a Christian. Or maybe so-and-so's an elder at this church. And you hear what he did? Why would I want to go to church with that person? Because they committed this sin. This is blaspheming God's name is what it is. It's causing this banner that we have to uphold. It's causing damage to it. So we have to think of the consequences of our actions. Not only does it hurt other people, but most importantly, it hurts God's name. We are supposed to be bearers of good news. That's what an evangelist is. Evangelize means to preach the good word. The gospel being the good word. We're to preach it. We're to proclaim it everywhere we go. And if we commit a sin like this, people are going to look at us and be like, they're a hypocrite. We have a name, God's name to uphold. We can't, we can't let this damage come to God's name by committing these sins. We see David and Bathsheba's sin hurt God's name. Just as today, if we commit these sins, it would hurt God's name. We see the damage to others around it. It says in verse 6 that no man go and beyond and defraud his brother in any way. So this word defraud, what, what exactly does it mean? Well, I think of defraud, like I'm going to defraud the government of tens of thousands of dollars, right? That's the first thing I think of. Your, your means to illegally obtain by means of deception. So how do we go and defraud our brother whenever through this sexual sin? Well... In a relationship, in a marriage relationship, we have a husband and a wife. And they have relationship with each other. And that's what they're due in a relationship. If I'm going and I'm having an extramarital affair with someone else's wife, I'm stealing what they are due. I'm defrauding him of what he's due in his relationship. I'm defrauding myself of what I'm due in my relationship. This is illegally obtained by means of deception. We see deception here. In this Most importantly, though, this damage is to us. Well, how are we damaged? First Corinthians 6:18, it says, "The flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body." How does it cause damage to you? Well, it hurts our relationship with God. If we just continue down this path of sin, You know, my dad's a carpenter, and his hands are a lot tougher than mine. He's got calluses on them, and they're pretty well numb by now. He's cut his hand so many times that he doesn't really have a lot of feeling there. And that's what we do to our relationship with God. We're going to sin. We're like, oh, it won't hurt that much. The first time it does, heals up, makes a little scar, cut it again. And it gets number and number until it just becomes motion for us to just commit this sin. And then before we know it, we're not even thinking about our relationship with God because we're consumed by this sin. It becomes our entire life. It becomes trying to cover up this sin. We don't want people to know about it. So we expend more time and energy keeping it hidden from other people. As we talk to more and more people, we have to be deceptive. We have to defraud them all around us so we can keep ourselves, keep this sin safe in our life. And before you know it, we've got this stronghold built, and we're trapped inside of it, and we can't get out. Because we're consumed by this sin. In the latter part of that verse, it says, We've been warned because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Of what? If you don't keep his will, he's an avenger. We've also been forewarned and testified, you. This is something that Paul has told them time and time again. I'm sure whenever he was there at Thessalonica, he told them, he warned them about fornication. This isn't something that he just wrote to them after he got there. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, don't commit fornication. But this is something that we got to talk about. We have to be at the tips of our mind whenever we're thinking about it. Because this is what the church is built on, these families, this relationship. And if, it, if the worm gets in there and starts to eat it away, everything will crumble. It's like, imagine building a house. On a foundation you're going to build a tower it's a 200 foot tall and you pour your foundation and then you crack the foundation you crack it right in half then you start building and you're going to build a pretty good while and it's going to be stable and the more you add to this the more it's going to start weaving and wobbling and before you get to that 200 foot it's going to fall it's going to be crumbled down and that's what it is building a life trying to keep that sexual, this immorality hidden in our life. It's a, it's a cracked foundation. Everyone here would not build a house on a cracked foundation. You'd tear it up and you'd pour a new foundation, right? We have this foundation poured in our lives. At baptism, we have Christ, the chief cornerstone, this church that we're now part of, this body of believers. This is the new foundation. It's not the cracked foundation of sin, but this new life that we have been promised. Now we have to build upon that foundation. He therefore that despises this, despises this commandment of God, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us His Holy Spirit. So we start to despise it, right? As I said, we're building this callous up. What happens if we continue to despise it? For if we sin willfully, after there we have received knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. No more sacrifice for sin. What's that mean? Well, it means that the blood has become of none effect to you guys. It means that if you are going to continue to sin, it doesn't matter. You're going to lose your salvation. Romans 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Just because we have grace, just because we're saved by God's grace, doesn't mean that we can, it's a license to sin. Just if, if, we continue, if we continue to sin willfully after we've received knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who is trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and is done despite to the great spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belong to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord should judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I don't want to be caught in this trap, folks. I, I don't want to continue to despise it. So that's why God created marriage, right? Romans 13.4 Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We're continuing down this path. We're going to fall into the hands of a living God. And what happens, you may ask? Well, Paul writes about it an awful lot. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind are not going to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. Ephesians 5, 3-5, "...but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks." For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Galatians 5, 19, 21 The works of the flesh are manifest. And which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of which I tell you before is also I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If we don't give this sin up, we're not going to be saved. If it consumes our lives, we're not going to be saved. We can't just serve God haphazardly and give Him 80% of our life. We're not, we can't even give Him ninety. percent of it, our life, or 98% of our life, or as the Germex says, 99.99% of our life. We have to give them all of our life. If we keep part of this hidden from Him, we don't want Him to come into it, and we keep committing these sins, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is a scary thought because in my life, I've committed sins, right? How many persons, I want to show of hands, how many people have committed sin in here? Everybody, right? We're not going to, but if we continue down this path and we just see our salvation as a license to sin, it's a scary thought if we just use this as a license to sin. So we see here a spirit versus flesh battle. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to walk in the Spirit, as he says in Galatians five sixteen, And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. So you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. So walking in the Spirit, if I'm following God and God's will in my life, I'm not going to be following after these sins. I'm not going to be lusting after these sins. I'm not going to be following my wants and desires, but I'm going to be following God's will and desire. So to conquer this last stronghold, I just said it's the flesh. To conquer this, to be overcome of this. And we begin this by repentance. God has graciously given us opportunity while we're here on this earth to repent and turn from our sins. As long as the world still stands, it's an opportunity to repent, to turn from it. We can begin a new life. We can turn from the, our way of sin. We can, can start a new path. And we do that by walking in the Spirit. We begin to follow His will, follow His desire for our life. We learn self-control, especially in committing these acts of sexual immorality, we learn to exercise control over our bodies, possess our vessel, possess our own body. And then we need to, most importantly, we need to recognize the gift that God has given us, i.e. marriage. He's given graciously, given woman for man and man for woman. We're here for each other. We're here for, to fulfill the needs of each other. He says in 1 Corinthians 7-2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman also have her own husband. We have this gift that God has given us. We don't need to continue down this path of sexual immorality. We We can turn from it. We can repent from it. We have this opportunity. As long as the earth is still standing, we have opportunity to turn from it. There's people that I know that were consumed by this in the past. And they've turned from it. And they're walking a new life as a Christian. And that's a blessing. You can see the Spirit working in their life. And that's a blessing. So we have this great opportunity. We have a gracious God that has given us this time to come and turn to Him. We need to take advantage of it. We don't know when the end is. No one does. But while the earth still stands, there's opportunity. So at this time, we have to offer an invitation. We offer this invitation. We're your family here. Although we may not be physical, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm here for you, and you're here for me. If, I'm gonna, if we're walking together, you're to help me stand up if I fall. I'm here to help you stand up. It's not about winning the race, but we're here to help each other finish the race. Miguel, whenever he ran, he didn't come in first place, did you? But you had people there cheering you on to help you get to the finish line, right? That's what this church body is. That's what this family is. We're here to help each other make it to the finish line. I'm not here to run past everybody and get to heaven first. That's not my job. My job is to make sure I don't lose anyone along the way. That I'm here to help take people to the finish line with me. So we offer an invitation. If you don't know Christ at this time, we have an opportunity that you can know Him. He tells us in His Word that we need to repent of our sins, turn from our path, believe what He has, believe that He is the Son of God. And if you believe, be baptized remission of your sins. Have your sins washed away. Be buried with Him in baptism and rise a new creature to walk in newness of life. If you have any needs at this time, make them known as we stand and sing this invitation song. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page.